you think I have given a public talk before and that you need a mic to do so. <laughs> One of those mornings, I guess. Um, okay, hey, welcome. It's uh, so good to see so many of you. And uh, for my uh, <laughs> second part to Saints, Mystics, and Misfits, the title of my series that we're in. And um, I'm going to apologize ahead of time for what I'm about to say, all right? Because <laughs> I'm going to get into Ken Wilber, and um, it's sort of like saying, I'm going to try to say everything about everything all at the same time. So I'm not Im- inviting you to understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> I barely understand what I'm talking about. And at the very least, I want you to have an impression of the terrain that I'd like to try to cover today. Well, what is the terrain like? What does it look like? What does it feel like? To include as much as possible in how we view the world and how we view ourselves and how we view systems and structures and everything else that we would call reality. How do we include as much as possible? In fact, this is you know, the, the second week of Saints, Mystics, and Misfits. Last week I did Richard Rohr. I'm starting with people who are still alive. Ken Wilber is an American philosopher. He's still alive. And uh, Richard Rohr was last week. And, and how did I learn about Ken Wilber? Well, from Richard Rohr, a Franciscan monk of all people. And he, every once in a while he'd use a quote. I'd be like, who the heck is this guy? So for the last 15 years I've been diving in and out of Ken Wilber. Sometimes I'm, I'm obsessive and I'll be like, this is it. I've found the path. And uh, all I do is read Ken Wilber, and then, and then I lose the path. I'm like, ah, it's a bunch of crap. I need poems. And so I just come in and out, and, and right now I'm kind of in. I'm in the, the, the questions that, that Wilbur is raising. And, and is he a saint? I doubt it. Is he a mystic? For sure. And, um, and I, I have a very simple definition of, of a mystic, and that is one who experiences a significant experience or experiences of the transcendent. Um, or use any kind of tradition you want to use, the immolation of the self and the experience of something larger. He's definitely that. In fact, he was a practitioner of different forms of meditation, largely in the Buddhist tradition, at the same time as being a philosopher, which is quite unusual. I don't know how many philosophers you know, but they tend not to be practitioners of meditation, Um, although that's changing now. But he was that kind of person, a very spiritually minded person. And then having the kind of mind that he has, which is sort of like a once in a generation mind, he tried to start mapping everything. (laughs) And he has this little uh, story, and these are his journal entries called One Taste. And um, if you buy this book, it's a great place to start. You'll be reading, you know, like, you know, Sunday, February 13, and you'll be thinking to yourself, who journals like this? I certainly don't. I'm like, I was lonely today. And he's like, as, you know, and he's into, you know, talking about subatomic particles, you know, in a journal entry. So um, what was my main point? Um, the map of everything. Oh, the story in here. And so what he started to do, he was his first initial interest was what we would might call stages of consciousness, not just states of consciousness, because those are interesting. Everybody all the time has access to different states of consciousness, with or without the use of medicines or drugs or music or 
whatever, we can shift in and out of states of consciousness, but stages of consciousness are quite different. And that's what he was first in initially interested in mapping. What are the stages of consciousness, and does it progress? Can you have a more expansive um, view of the world? And the answer to that is something like yes. And he started putting those on the ground on little legal pads, like tearing off a, one of those yellow legal pads, you know, and saying, here's Claire Graves' model, and Jung is over here, and he's got psychology and philosophy, and he's got Buddhism over here, and then he's got... And he just starts laying it out on the floor. Just really hundreds of people and thinkers and maps and models, and started to ask, what are the patterns here? And that's a very interesting question, at least to me. What are the patterns? It's sort of like what Joseph Campbell did for myths. We talked about this in the pre-talk. What are the patterns here? Like um, in Charity's uh, meditation, we could ask, what are the patterns here that are present in this myth that are in other myths? Well, he simply started to do that for everything, <laughs> which sounds like a big task because it is. Um, okay, so that's um, a tiny, tiny introduction to who Ken Wilbur is. And here's what I want to try to do today. And I'm going to fail, so... You can, afterwards, you can say, you really failed today. And I'll say, thank you. That was my goal. <laughs> I want to do two things. I want to de describe integral theory, or it's, it's, maybe it's a model more than a theory even, but um, just look at it. And, I, and, and instead of giving you a, a reading today, I've, I've given you an, an image of integral theory, and we'll look at it. But again, we're not, you know, you're not going to walk away and, you know, after this and get a PhD, sign up for your PhD program in this sort of stuff. We're just brushing against it. I want to do that. And then I want to read two passages. So we want to talk about the theory. And then if I have time, I'm going to read two longer sections from his journal entries so you can hear how he talks about something. I want to pick religion and um, politics, everyone's favorite topic, religion and politics, <laughs> the thing you're not supposed to talk about that everybody talks about anyway all the time. So. What does he have to say about religion? What does he have to say about politics? Just from his journal entries, and I think you'll find, find that interesting. So, okay, first I want to talk about integral theory. And here's the backdrop to what you need to know before we get into the, the little map here itself. And the backdrop is, here's a, here's a quotation from, from Wilbur. The universe is not made up of things or processes. This is about the closest you'll get to a claim, very direct claim that he makes, the background of his thinking. The universe is not made up of things or processes. The universe is made up of holons. It's not a word that he invented, but a holon is both a whole and a part. Okay? Now, it's really not that hard to understand. It's sort of like saying everything is a unit unto itself, and everything is a part of something else. That's the very structure of the universe, period. That's what he would say. Everything is holonic. Everything is a whole and a part, a whole and a part, a whole and a part. And that's a scientific fact, as much as a psychic fact and a spiritual fact and a planetary fact, and that's what he would claim. And why is it a scientific fact? Well, let's just take um, atoms. An atom is a whole, complete unit unto itself. Wouldn't you agree? 
You were just thinking about this morning, like, oh, I love atoms. They're just complete. They don't need anything. They're total. They've done it. They succeeded. But what are molecules? Well, they're made up of atoms, you know. So molecules are made up of atoms. And then we could go the other way. What are atoms made up of? And do you see what I'm saying? We're expanding in both directions. That's the very nature of the world, of reality, as best we can tell. And, and I want to tell you something in case you freak out. He would say integral theory is what he calls orienting generalizations, <laughs> which is a funny way of saying hold everything lightly. I'm generalizing, so don't freak out. We're just trying to put categories and maps and models and images around things so we can bump into knowledge about the world that we find ourselves in. So the first claim is it's holonic. And you would say, well, who needs to know that? Well, let's just take any problem right now, like... Um, uh, uh, the fact that, that, that I don't like climate change, I'm trying to think of another word, but I'll just go with climate change. I'll say climate change, which is a very boring word for the, the biosystems are messed up, and some of them are getting worse. Wouldn't you agree? Well, why would having a more holonic view of the world matter? Because everything is buried and embedded in everything else. And everything you do and everything you think and, every, and how you act and how you be is interrelated and interconnected to everything else. So it matters. Are you with me? All right. Now we'll get into the fun stuff. <clears throat> Let's talk about these four quadrants. So as a way of talking about knowledge, which is epistemology, really, how do we know what we know? He says... Um, Integral theory involves five things, quadrants, lines, stages or levels, states and types. I'm going to talk about all of them, and you're going to be like, I don't even remember this by the end. Great, I've succeeded in, in my mission to fail, okay? So quadrants. He says that the universe is divided up into four quadrants, really, how we come to know the world, and all four matter all the time, all right? And so look at them right here. The big ones, the big categories are I, it, we, and its. You can see that. You see that there on the model. So this is the quadrants. It's a way of thinking about what's real. And the I is that, you know, um, interpersonal subjective experience of the world. Like you're listening to me, but you're also thinking about other things like Kent's kind of full of crap or... I wonder what's for lunch, or I mean, your, your consciousness is amazing like that. Your ego can move around all over the place, you know. And, um, and now, if you weren't thinking about lunch, now you are thinking about lunch, you know. So it's like, but that's the I. I can't get in there. I could put you in a MRI machine and scan your brain, and and or some other kind of machine, and I could know what was firing off in your brain. And we could see it, we could map it, but I still wouldn't know what you were thinking because that's that inner subjective world of I. And that I is complex, and, you, and we could add to, the, to it right now, you can have a low, lower level of consciousness or a higher level of consciousness. Now, you might reject that, and there'd be reasons for rejecting that, because some people don't like hierarchies, but lower, higher does work in this world. It's holarchic. It's, it includes everything else. Okay, and then there's the it. There's the it. That's the external subjective world. I mean, objective world, <laughs> not subjective, Ob objective world, the it of things. That would actually be looking at your brain and, you know, the neurons and how they're firing and the chemicals and the synapses and, 
And those are your thoughts. And we can map that and know that and look at that. And then we have the we, if you look at the lower left quadrant. Um, and this is um, the realm of the interior but collective. The interior but collective. Like the we of your worldview, your ideas, how you were raised, you know, the things you put on your, if you're into Facebook or whatever, your Facebook profile, like your interests and your, you know, the groups that you've liked over the years. You know, I support Ukraine or I support, that's the we. You're in a group. Um, and those groups also can have higher level, levels of, of awareness or consciousness. And then the it's, those are the social systems. Like you're in a system whether you're conscious of it or not an economic system, a political system, uh, um, so forth and so on. Societal systems. Are you with me so far? Four quadrants. I'll give you a small example. I don't want to get like Alice in Wonderland, go down too many rabbit holes here, but why would this matter? Well, let's just take something simple like Kent is falling in love. All right? Let's just say I'm falling in love. And um, as you can tell, I'm falling in love by my demeanor right now. So what would that mean? And we would say, what does that look like? How, do, how would I know or we know that I'm falling in love? Well, I'd have to have an internal subjective experience, wouldn't you agree? And what would that be? Oh, I'd be happy and euphoric and amazed and... and I'd be thinking about this person all the time, and, and I would say, of the 350 million people in America, this is the best one I've ever met, you know? And I'm taken over by that, and it's a real experience, wouldn't you agree? Have you ever read any love poetry? Have you ever been in love? It's a real thing. It's actually happening. No questions asked from the perspective of the I. But what else is happening? When we move over to the it, then we're in the realm of, Hormones and chemicals and pheromones and synapses and evolutionary biology and the fight-or-flight response. And, and all that is also real, wouldn't you agree? And then we could move into the we, which is, all right, what system, what we am I in? Like if I'm in a, for example, look down here, in a more mythic order of consciousness, I might think the gods have arranged this or its fate or destiny, I'd be reading my experience within a social system, within a we context. Have I made sense? And then I could move over to the its. And, and if we got married, then we're de dealing with a legal system. And that system has a history, and that system is embedded in other systems like economic systems and, and religious systems or non-religious systems. So when you say, I'm in love, it's complicated. That's all Wilbur is saying. It's complicated. And you, well, you could say, well, who cares about all this complication? Well, it only matters if, in fact, one of the things humanity needs is higher consciousness. And you would say, well, prove that. Well, I can't. But let's just take Einstein, for example. No problem can be solved by the same consciousness that creates it. We have a lot of problems. Wouldn't you agree? And so now we have to ask the question, how do you expand your consciousness? Because if you say you can't, you know, shit happens, you're just stuck, then you're stuck. And Ken Wilber's saying, no, there is a kind of evolution 
Why? Because everything evolves. Everything evolves from simple to complex. And same with human consciousness and human systems. The we and the it's, to use the quadrants. Have I made sense so far? Easy. Done. Wilbur experts. No problem. All right, I'm going to briefly do um, lines, levels, states, and types. Because <laughs> I only just described the quadrants. So let's take lines of development. This would really be in the eye. They're not on here, so you don't have to look at your piece of paper anymore, all right? Because you're like, I don't see this on there. Well, you're right, it's not on there. So what are lines? Lines are, are ways of talking about the subjective experience and sometimes a little bit of the we experience, but I'll give you an example. Here are the major lines. Cognitive, emotional, interpersonal, psychosexual, moral, and spiritual. Those are levels or, excuse me, those are lines inside your consciousness, all right? Cognitive, emotional, interpersonal, psychosexual, moral, and spiritual. And in a holonic way, we would say everything matters and everything is interrelated and everything is interconnected. So why am I mentioning that? Why is he mentioning that? Um, because they're in relationship. So I'll take something kind of dramatic. Let's take um, nuclear fusion which I'm sure you know a lot about. Like, you know how to do it. You know how to split an atom, for example, or something like that. Let's take the nuclear bomb. The, uh, the level that were, the, the, the um, I keep using lines and levels, it's confusing. The, the major line we're talking about is cognitive. Wouldn't you agree that it takes tremendous cognitive development to develop a nuclear bomb? How do, how do you know that? Because you don't know how to do it. That's how you know it. You're like, somebody knows something more than I know, and we have to assume it's a lot more than I know. Wouldn't you agree? Now, consciousness is complicated. Couldn't you imagine the case where you're very developed cognitively, but you are lower in development morally, and you have the world that we live in? So we can create nuclear bombs, but then... Our level of morality is such that we want to drop them on other human beings. Do you see what I'm saying, why it matters? So again, why, why does Ken Wilber matter? Because he's saying everything matters all the time. And so don't forget about moral development or spiritual development or interpersonal development or emotional or, uh, what's the fancy one? Psychosexual, okay? All of them matter and all of them are part of what makes us complex human beings. And what most of us tend to do is we get very siloed. You know? Another way of saying this is different intelligences. That's the common way it comes into to parlance. So and so, we all have different levels of intelligence. Some are more emotionally intelligent than others. But what he's saying is that all of them can expand. All right, let's talk about, um, how do I want to do this? I don't really want to talk about types because I'm going to run out of time. But those are things like um, Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, personality types, the big five personality types. It's a way of saying, not only do we have a complex world, everything that I'm, I'm describing, personality is complex and, it's, and it organizes itself in patterns. And those patterns influence how you see the world. If you're an extrovert, you really do see the world a certain way and you process the world in a certain way. If you're an introvert, you process it in a vastly different way. 
which causes problems between these two kinds of people, and also opportunities. So I want to settle down for a moment in stages. So among the five things here, you don't have to even remember them, quadrants, stages, lines, states, and types, let's focus on stages of development, just briefly. How many have heard of spiral dynamics? Five of you, all right. Spiral dynamics is a frame developed by Claire Graves that talks about the stages of development, what we would call psychologically or psycho-spiritually. Here are really, really simple ways of putting it, stages of development, um, body, mind, spirit. That's very simple, okay? Body, mind, spirit, as a development. Um, here's a, here is how it's situated um, uh, culturally. Me, us, all of us. Do you feel the difference there? Me, it's, uh, it's all about me, my needs, my wants, my likes, my life. Us, it's about us collectively, or depends on who we put in the us, right? My group, largely, or it's about all of us. And you could say, well, what does all of us include? Well, mushrooms and grass. Depends on how far that ex extends out. Um, or egocentric, ethnocentric, world-centric, cosmocentric. Do you just feel how it grows? And some of it grows naturally. As, as any, if you've been a parent or ever been around a child, which is all of you, you've been around a child, they grow more or less psychologically from egocentric to, well, first they have an ego, and it's egocentric, and then it becomes a little more ethnocentric group. There's the I, and then there's the you, and then we're in the same household together, and then it can grow from there. Now, how, how much it grows is, is uh, part of the question here. So, oh, okay, now I'm just going to hammer so I can get to the readings. I just want to give you some tears here, because this will be fun. All right, fun for me. <laughs> All right, these are stages of development that are really in the... I'm blending social systems and interpersonal for a moment. So he puts them in colors, red. Okay, here's the red. Warrior, egocentric, tribal, and magic is the consciousness. Okay, red is a warrior, egocentric, tribal, and magic. What is magic? Not like David Copperfield, but magic like if I do a spell, it changes the world in some way physically alters the, the world. That's the world of magic. Okay, here's amber. We're going to go, we're gonna go this, down the spectrum here very briefly. Amber. This is traditional. Traditional. It's ethnocentric, my group, my tribe. It's values and rules. Those are the main things. This is the book of Leviticus, if you want an example. I know you were all reading the book of Leviticus this morning. You know, there are really hundreds of rules in there that deal with how to be a tr in this tribe. And the Jewish people were not the first or only tribal group to do that. Every tribal group does it because of the amber stage of consciousness. And it's mythic in its orientation. That's where you get myths and stories. All right, orange, rational and science, scientific. You're like, oh yeah, this is, this is a good one. I like the rational and scientific. It's individualistic. Individualism matters. It's about self-reliance, and it's very rational. 
Do you feel how that's different than the mythic, so forth and so on? It's an expansion. It's a growth. All right? This is followed by probably your favorite, green. All right? Because, oh, we like green anyway. So green, it's values-based and it's pluralistic. It's values-based and pluralistic. It cares about civil rights and the environment, and its main orientation is plural, is including as much of all of us as, as possible. Now, most people, that's about as far as you get. Okay, and you could still ask the question, how do you grow from red, amber, orange to green? Very good question. I'm not going to answer it now. But um, one of the things that each group will think is that it's above and beyond better than the lower ones. And those lower ones no longer are valuable. Okay? That's generally what people conclude. If you move from amber to orange, like if you're in a scientific rational individualism, you will look at the values and rules that are mythic, like religion, and say, they got it wrong. They got it wrong. It's generally the conclusion. That's how you, how you move. For a while, that's how you move. But... Um, Ken Wilber is famous for a little phrase which he calls transcend and include and how we start to get to the slightly higher tiers of consciousness. So I'm just going to give you two more. There are more. Teal, which is about natural hierarchy, which is interesting. Systems, it holds multiple perspectives at the same time. It's flexible and what he calls integral. It integrates as much as possible. And I'm going to tell you something, you don't know very many people like this. Now, you might think, I'm one of them, but then you might be a little more individualistic. <laughs> Everybody who reads this thinks they're higher. I did the first time. I'm like, probably teal, you know. <laughs> Generally not how it works, all right? Um, let me give you turquoise, all right? It holds individual self and transpersonal self at the same time. Okay? This is like Buddha mind, Christ consciousness. It's transpersonal. Um, it's holistic, cosmocentric, and it's post-postmodern. It's not postmodern, but it's post-postmodern. <laughs> so this is now we're in the ridiculous category. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But I just wanted to give you the color spectrums here. Now ask yourself the question: Is Einstein right? that no problem can be solved by the same consciousness that created it. If he's right, then what I'm saying matters here. How does consciousness expand? Your personal consciousness, the consciousness of this group, the consciousness of Grand Haven, the consciousness of West Michigan, the consciousness of the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, no party, all parties, our, our, our state, our country, our continent, our oceanic oneness. Do you, do you see the things I'm probing around in? And my guess is, and I think Ken Wilber is, would support me on that, is that the major problems we face in the world right now are problems that are rooted in consciousness. So all this stuff matters. How you teach your kids, what you teach your kids, what's on television, what's on your phone, everything, all the time, everywhere matters when it comes to consciousness. Okay? See you next week. No. <laughs> all right, now I'm going to read some Wilbur because I just wanted to give you almost an image and just to mess with you a bit and just to give you a map here and something to look at and to wonder about. And you should wonder, where am I on this, I think? 
And if you're really humble, you know, you're probably lower than you think. <laughs> and I'm lower than I think. Um, I suffer from, I've read it, therefore I am. All right? And that's <laughs> typically not the case. So now I want to give you, hopefully I have my glasses, yeah. All right, now I'm going to read straight from the horse's mouth here a couple things from, from Wilbur. All right, I'm going to get into what he calls the difference between translation and transformation as it relates to religion, because this is the fun stuff, all right? The theory is behind us now, and we're just going to riff on, on religion. Like, is religion good or bad? You know, don't you want to know? Are you religious? Are you not religious? You know, what do you wish for other people? What does religion actually do or don't do for people? What are its limitations? I forgot to tell you this. One of the best things that Ken Wilber says is nobody is 100% wrong. Okay? So nobody is 100% wrong. No human being, no group, no ideology, no position, no church, no whatever. Nobody's 100% wrong. Try that out for a moment. Like, not while, not while I'm reading this, but try it out sometime, all right? It changes how you view things. It also means nobody's 100% right. <laughs> so there's the problem of what do I not know about my own perspective that's wrong, okay? So here we go. Religion itself has always performed two very important but different functions, all right? One, this is function number one, the function of religion, it acts as a way of creating meaning for the separate self. The separate self is really a term that comes out of Buddhism and just means the I, okay? Kind of like the ego we could even substitute here. The separate self from the world. It creates meaning for the separate self. It offers myths and stories and tales and narratives and rituals and revivals that taken together help the separate self make sense of and endure the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. That's a Shakespearean line. This function of religion does not usually or necessarily change the level of consciousness in a person. Huh, okay. It does not deliver radical transformation, nor does it deliver a shattering liberation from the separate self altogether. Rather, it consoles the self. It fortifies the self. It defends the self. It promotes the self. You belong. You matter. Here's your identity and your meaning and your purpose and your belonging. You're welcome here. Here's some bread and wine so you can be part of our group. And here's a, a dunking ritual so you can be part of your... Do you, you hear what I'm saying? It does actually help the separate self not freak out about reality. Because the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune are hell to deal with existentially. Okay? Oh, this is so good. As long as the separate self believes the myths, performs the rituals, mouths the prayers, or embraces the dogma, then the self, is it is fervently believed, will be saved. Now, in the glory of being God-saved or goddess-favored, or in the afterlife, that ensures eternal wonderment, okay? That's function number one. Like you say, way to go, religion, all right? Identity, meaning, belonging, purpose, fortifying the separate self. Now, go ahead and substitute 
political parties, ideologies, other kinds of camps. Do you see how they can do the same thing? Reality is freaky. Don't worry. We've got rituals, rites, maps, models, ceremonies, badges, flags, banners to fortify the separate self. Right? But here's function number two, my favorite. But two, religion has also served in a in usually very, very small minority of people, the function of radical transformation and liberation. This function of religion does not fortify the separate self, but utterly shatters it. These are the saints, mystics, and misfits. It's not consolation, you matter, you belong, but devastation. Not entrenchment, but emptiness. Buddhist notion. Not complacency, but explosion. Not comfort, but revolution. In short, not a conventional bolstering of consciousness, but a radical transmutation and transformation at the deepest seat of consciousness itself. That's what we wish religion did all the time. It just does it very infrequently. And sometimes it happens to people who are on the fringes of that very religion. That's why we get saints, mystics, and misfits. They're experiencing an immolation of the self, which leads to a transformation of consciousness, which expands and helps one grow in terms of stages of consciousness. You begin to see that not only do I matter, but you matter, and you matter, and wait a minute, how far does that mattering extend? Have I made sense? Sort of. You know what? I'm, I'm so enjoying religion right now. Maybe I'll just read this one. Not, and not get into politics. Here's, here's some more. There are several different ways we can state these two important functions of religion. The first function, that of creating meaning for the self, is a type of horizontal movement. Okay, What group am I in? Right to left. Okay, Horizontally. And this is where you can change denominations. You're like, oh, the Baptists have it wrong. Sidestep over here to the evangelicals. Oh, they got it wrong. Sidestep over here to the Catholics. Oh, way over here to the Orthodox. They really have it. That's horizontal movement. Make sense? The second function, that of transcending the self, is a type of vertical movement, either higher or deeper. Depends on the metaphor, I guess. The first I've named translation. The second I've named transformation. With translation, the self is simply given a new way to think or feel about reality. I'm translating reality. The self is given a new belief. Perhaps it's holistic instead of atomistic or forgiveness instead of blame perhaps relational instead of analytic. The self then learns to translate its world and its being in terms of this new belief or new language or new paradigm. And this new and enchanting translation acts, at least temporarily, to alleviate or diminish the terror inherent in the heart of the separate self. Translation. But with transformation, the very process of translation itself is challenged, witnessed, undermined, and eventually dismantled. With typical translation, the self or subject is given a new way to think about the world, but with radical transformation, the self itself is inquired into. Who is the self doing the selfing? Taking, who is the self taking the selfie? All right? you're, you're right on the edge there. But it's inquired into, it's looked into. With radical transformation, the self is inquired into, looked into, grabbed by the throat, and literally throttled to death. That's transformation. And actually, most spiritualities, 
most religions, the contemplative or mystical side would agree with exactly what he's saying. You get to a point where the self implodes. And it's not fun. You know, you're not going to sell out stadiums. Come and have yourself dismantled. All right? What sells out stadiums is come and have yourself bolstered and fortified. Let's all chant together, lock someone up, you know? And that, give, that fortifies the separate self. But in the quiet recesses of the dark night, to use Christian language, dark night comes from St. John, or in the vast sea of emptiness felt by the Buddha and the abyss, the self implodes. Now, it kind of comes back online again, but as a transformed self. And that process continues to cycle. That's what we mean by growing in stages of consciousness. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, here's a little caveat. Because right away, I read this the first time. I was like, damn straight, religion has got it wrong. All right? Well, they're just bolstering the, the little self. You know, how dumb. I just want to read you a little warning here. He says, um, the capacity for religion to provide horizontal meaning, legitimacy, and sanction for the self and its beliefs, that function of religion has historically been the single greatest social glue that culture has. It puts the culture together so that people aren't insane and running around all over the place and doing whatever they want and making a mess and being general narcissists saying, don't forget, religion serves this purpose with its rules and order and belonging and even groups. I am not that. So he says this, one does not tamper easily or lightly with the basic glue that holds societies together. Because more often than not, when that glue dissolves, when the translation dissolves, the result, as we are seeing, is not breakthrough but breakdown. Not liberation, but social chaos. He wrote this in the year 2000. All right, so he's describing, yeah, all right, when religion starts to lose its grip, you find chaos, not liberation. All right, and is our world more chaotic? Hmm, okay. So anyway, I'm, I'm going to summarize what he says. He basically says religion is a conveyor belt that does help the separate self for a while, but the idea is for that conveyor belt to keep moving. So he sort of warns about the dangers of being too anti-religious. What we need to do is say not everybody, or we should, we should say not everybody is 100% wrong, and it's doing some good in the world. Let's help that conveyor belt keep moving. Okay? What time is it? Hmm. One more, because here he picks on the liberals, not that you know any. Okay. <laughs> oh, jeez. All right. All right, I'll read you as much as I can fit in in the time remaining which is really however long I want to keep talking. All right. I describe today's typical conservative as subscribing to a growth-to-goodness view. That's what he says most conservatives have unconsciously. You grow into goodness, right? 
By the way, the liberal is the opposite. It's natural goodness. That's the unconscious assumption. All right? I, did, I describe today's typical conservative as subscribing to a growth-to-goodness view, and that is generally true. But equally typically, that growth only extends from pre-conventional nature to conventional society. In other words, you only grow up to the rules of the conventions. You know, it's like the social norms. It's like social conformity. And does not easily continue to post-conventional, world-centric domains. It's the problem of the conservative. They have a hard time growing into a world-centric view. Okay? And you're, right now, you're like, oh, Ken Wilber's the best. Love this guy. Okay. Much of typical conservatism has its roots in the mythic agrarian age, whose values were civic, aristocratic, hierarchical, militaristic, ethnocentric, patriarchal, and usually sunk in a context of mythic concrete gods, like God is a literal thing, like a literal being that's up there. A, as dismal as we moderns might find that type of society, nonetheless it arose around the globe ubiquitously for 5,000 years, which is amazing, where it served its purposes and served them quite well. This makes Wilbur Veer an unusual thinker because he's saying it matters, it's important, it's part of the subtext of, of even your psyche. When the rational industrial age dawned, great us, with its post-conventional world-centric moral atmosphere, a new political vision became available to men and women, and that of the liberal enlightenment. And in many ways, this was a decisive break with the mythic and monarchical past. By the way, these are his journal entries, <laughs> just reminding you, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Um, rationality would fight mythology, democracy would fight aristocracy, equality would fight hierarchy, freedom would fight slavery. That, at its best, was the vision of modernity and liberalism, was the political agenda that captured those lofty ideals. But modernity, critics have noted, was not always and certainly not only lofty. There was a downside to modernity, many downsides, perhaps, but all summarized in the notion of flat land, due largely to a rampant scientific materialism coupled with materialistic uh, industrialism, all forms of holarchy, even the good, the beneficial, and the spiritual forms, such as the great nest of being, were collapsed into a flat and faded view of the world, composed of nothing but systems of interwoven objects, interwoven its with no eyes and no we's to speak of. It, it, I'll just paraphrase what he's saying. He's denying that they're denying consciousness or consciousness as growth, period. It's just, it's just math, okay? It's just atoms and molecules. That's flat. Gone was the soul, gone was the mind, gone was the spirit, and in their place an unending flatland of material bodies, which alone were thought to be real, what he calls bodyism, actually. The disenchantment of the world, one-dimensional man, the disqualified universe, the desacralization of the world were a few of the famous phrases critics used to summarize this dreary state of affairs. I'm almost done. Liberalism, too, as a child of modernity, was thoroughly caught in this collapse, and therefore, instead of coming to an accurate self-understanding of its own interior foundations, namely, 
and the growth from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric, liberalism instead became the political champion of flatland. Instead of interior growth and development, liberalism came to advocate almost solely exterior, right-hand, economic development as means of freedom. Since according to Flatland, there are no interiors, and since morals are interior realities, then succumbing to the modern Flatland, liberalism abdicated its basic moral intuition. I'm not going to read that part. Sadly, inevitably perhaps, liberalism abdicated its moral voice and settled for demanding exterior material economic freedom alone failing to realize that without interior freedom, exterior freedom is largely meaningless. I know he's using a lot of big words, and you can barely follow what I'm saying. I can barely follow what I'm reading, and I've read it a hundred times. He's saying one of the faults of liberalism is it flattened everything out. It flattened morality out. No one can be right or wrong. Who's to judge? There's no such thing as higher consciousness, and the only realm of action is making things economically fair for people. What he's saying is there's a major blind spot because that's not holistic enough. It denies interior expanded consciousness. And I'm not, I'm, but I'll paraphrase the rest. <laughs> he says this, because of Flatland, he wrote this in 2000, he says, up, rising against it will become, will, will come a movement that is conservative that wants to go back to the way things were which is exactly the United States of America. And the conservative critique is not wrong. The conservative critique is right when it says, you're claiming everything is flat, and that doesn't make sense. And that's worth fighting for. Okay, I've left you just flapping in the wind here, which is part of failing when it comes to giving a good public talk. <laughs> So I really don't want to summarize, but I want to say something simple is what hints or clues or guesses or little pricklings happened in you as we were just sort of exploring this terrain and what would it look like to go further? And it'll be interesting to see what happens in Talkback, which we'll do in a few minutes after the service and see what, see what comes to the surface. Play with some of these ideas and images and questions and wonderings and let them work on you. And that's about all we can do when we're dealing with such like a meta approach to everything. So thanks for listening.